Hey everyone, Yas here and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends and don't forget to get in touch guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that's at the Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A license football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got two very special guests with me today. I'm sure today's going to be a fascinating conversation. My guests this morning are Amy Whitehead and Jen Cody. Morning, guys. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having us. Great. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks for being with us. Um, guys, just before we get into it, maybe just give a brief insight around who you guys are. Um, and what you guys currently do, and we can, maybe we can spin off into the topic from there. After you, Jen. Oh, so kind. Thanks, Ames. Um, so currently my role is with West Ham Women's um, WSL team as head of performance and wellbeing, key part of wellbeing at the end there, because uh, my background uh, has been uh, international basketball, playing and coaching, where those experiences have been great and not so great. And then into some spaces of coach development in education spaces with primary schools. Um, so um, the particular interest I have at the moment in the role that I'm in is how can we understand the people that we're working with and for? And um, that's where with the, the performance side of done some work in performance analysis uh, over the years and mental skills. So, yeah, a couple of different areas that I'm exploring. I think the book and the types of chapters that we have here will really challenge some people's thinking. And yeah, um, I work as a reader uh, in sports coaching, sports psychology and coaching at Liverpool John Moores University. Now, that doesn't mean I just read all the time, <laughs> which is a question I get. Basically, it's just uh, another term is associate professor, lecturer, um, researcher um, at the university. I'm an, also a sport and exercise psychologist. So I work a lot in terms of consultancy outside of my role at the university. Um, and I do a lot of work with coaches as well. Um, I teach predominantly on the coaching programme at Liverpool John Moores University. So I kind of see myself as a psychologist stepping into kind of coach development, coach education, straddling kind of both areas. Um, and that's kind of how me and Jen met, connected on the, on the coaching circuit and created the book. Awesome. You know, that's a great insight there already. I mean, it, you know, you've got quite varied backgrounds um, and I'm sure that, you know, coming together probably brought so, so many different experiences and insights together in, in the combination of a book. But just before we kind of get onto that, then, um, I think it would be really interesting and really good to get your perspectives on what you consider coaching to be. And obviously it is such a broad thing. Um, and obviously then becoming more specific when we look at sports coaching, there might be some nuances and intricacies within that itself. Um, I'm not sure who wants to start us off here. Amy's raised the eyebrows, so that means I get the green for go here on this. Um, 
It's a brilliant question. And I'm, I'm part of me for the listeners wants to default to some of the like key words, you know, and everyone can have an acronym and everyone can fly away with that. But actually over the years, experiencing it as a player, as a performance support <clears throat> member of staff, um, and as a coach myself, the interesting part is um, like understanding why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so I can use the word planned. What does that look like? Is it actually the meticulous detail on the paper? Is it the depth of understanding underneath what puts down the, the biomechanics of what you do and what the sport is asking of a person? Is it the organized element? Organize myself personally, my team, if I'm lucky enough to have a team of people or just an assistant coach or a volunteer parent. Uh, empathy, it involves a lot of empathy, uh, understanding and keeping your finger on the pulse of the group, how questions that you ask are impacted, what type of silence. But if you're all encompassing without this kind of silver bullet statement, it's a vehicle for development. Um, I used to say years ago that, you, you know, it's unlocking potential, but actually that power dynamic is really uncomfortable. It means that someone has a key <laughs> to somebody else's potential. So I'm, I'm brushing that to the side, but there's, it's just a space. It's a really cool space that people gravitate towards for one reason or another. And that you have an opportunity as a coach to nourish the relationships within that and then poof. Whatever happens, happens inside that. Now, your people at this end of the, the performance scale will be like, ah, Jen, bit vague, bit loose. But actually, you're refining constantly and you're defining each, you know, new ways to go down different spaces. So there is a big blurb, um, but that is as loose as I think it is. I think it's a, a meandering path, you know? Yeah, and I think just, you know, before we move on to Amy, I, I think, Jen, you something you've touched on, there, the word loose. And I think it, it has to remain loose somewhat because it is so personal and subjective to the environment you're in. I think it's really important for me anyway that coaches do understand that there isn't just one set definition of, you know, the Oxford Dictionary might have one, but in terms of the context that we're working, I think it's really important. And quite often what I, what I refer to the terminology of a coach is, um, if I, I look at more of the role of the coach and the role of the coach for me is actually being able to help a participant individual get from point A to point B, but when they're unable to get there themselves. So you're not taking them on the journey necessarily, but you're coming along the journey with them sometimes. And sometimes you might be actually driving that coach. Sometimes you actually might be, you know, just guiding them in directions. And sometimes it might just be giving them that bit of support and giving them that push when their car's broken down, maybe. Um, but it's yeah. getting them from point A to point B when they literally cannot get there themselves. And that's the way I view it. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. And then maybe we'll put your definition in. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, just to jump in quickly. I think what is brilliant about that is we now have the um, advancements of technology, though. So actually, where a coach was, and, you know, um, we, we want to move and shift as we are so brilliantly away from it being a person, usually a man who's X height with a baseball cap and a whistle and a clipboard. Like that image is you know, hopefully in most sports, uh, one of the past. So we now have coaching through our apps. We now have uh, progressive sports, as we saw from Tokyo, where coaches actually have a really different role to play in skateboarding and surfing. Um, so once we had a, a picture of a person being in an environment, we now have people and we have these peers and we have development. We have different styles of everyday leadership coming up. So sorry, aim to jump across. Look, the passion is kicking in already. No worries. Now, what can I add to that? <laughs> My um, So taking on board everything you both just said um, and thinking about, I mean, not to jump into the book already, but just thinking about kind of what resonates with each chapter is the importance of knowing the individual. So 
and like as a I feel like people will roll their eyes when I say this because I come from I'm a psychologist um, and for me it's all about understanding the person in front of you um, understanding how to communicate with that person because like you've just said if you're getting them from A to B then you need to know you know what makes that person tick um, but to be able to do that you need to understand yourself as well so I think it's a, like a, it's a real element of kind of self-awareness um, and kind of in the literature we talk about intrapersonal knowledge and having that ability to to be aware, to be self-aware, to reflect, to then develop your interpersonal knowledge, to be able to communicate, to be able to build relationships. And then for me, the professional knowledge comes last because it, if you don't have your intra and intra, then you can't communicate the professional knowledge effectively. So yeah, that's that's coaching for me. Yeah, I think in some ways it kind of resonates with me there is, is that, um, I don't know the, how the quote goes exactly, but it's people only know what you, well, only care what you know once they know how much you care, right? And it's just really building those internal, those initial relationships with the individual or group, whatever that may be. So I guess, you know, in, in, in terms of that, and, you know, it's really interesting, obviously, Jen, you mentioned, you know, we've got this stereotypical um, image that we might associate with coaching. And it's not just coaches that have to deal with the stereotypes, but also the parents that have this stereotypical image of what coaching could or should potentially look like based on their own perception, based on their own experiences. So I guess, you know, you talk there about having that one individual with a baseball cap, which now has got me thinking whether I should take mine off. Um, but how important is it to maybe understand that actually we are moving away from that stereotypical element of coaching and that coaching is not just a one, a one size fits all approach now and is actually so many different elements to the point where we're now we're now seeing a lot more specialists or niche coaches, if you like, you know, whether that be working with specific age groups, whether they work in specific positions, whether they're becoming more technical coaches or physical performance coaches, or however that might look, how important is it for us to maybe really get some insight on actually, yeah, that, you know, there's so many facets to this and it's not just a one size fits all approach. And especially in terms of supporting, maybe the support networks of the athletes themselves in educating those, those people as well. Don't know if that really comes out correctly. <laughs> no, my gosh, what a question, what a statement. There's one chapter when we do get into the resilience chapter that talks about a key factor being the support um, around the person. But if I think back to my experience years and years ago, back in the day, um, whether it was me as an athlete observing the coaches that we had um, or transitioning into the coaching role, like support looked really different and it even wasn't a word that we use very often peer groups social learning spaces communities of practice it was very siloed and then I fortunately spent some time working for the NGB two three years where I was supporting over 600 schools and as I went to different counties and different regions you just see people say oh Jen it's okay we've been doing this for years and it is back to that cliched statement one year repeated 20 times whereas now I feel even though I there's some caveats to it I feel like there's loads of information there not that there wasn't back and um, back in the day but there's different mediums different uh, awareness levels of people and how to connect and um, the blame culture may or may not in some sports be stronger or weaker and that people can ask for help and people understand and appreciate the need to go you know what actually I don't know the answer right now and where Amy was saying there about the athlete I think the profile the spotlight whatever way you want to look at it of the athlete has gone up in my eyes completely and we're not just the recipients of information and the coach doesn't feel like they just have to impart all their knowledge here's a book I read a course I took 
you know, yeah. that we're, we're collaborating on the court, the pitch, the pool side. 100%. I think just on that, you know, what really kind of jumps out at me is that the traditionally or historically, we've had this idea that coaching should um, almost give us a situation where the players are dependent on the coach. Whereas I think through not just, you know, football, the sport that I work in, but just generally, I think as a, as, as a, as a coaching industry, um, we've, we've, everyone seems to be transitioning more towards a more independent approach um, or providing more independence for the athlete. But my personal view is that they, they should never be going towards independence because then it just makes the role of the coach completely redundant. Um, so my own view is that actually we should be getting to a point where we kind of create an interdependence um, somewhat to the point where I guess psychologically and socially we're trusting and building enough confidence in our athletes to make their own decisions, but also be consciously aware that actually I need support right now. So let me go and ask for that. So they've got the psychological and social skills to understand and develop an awareness that they can do that. But they've also, you know, they've got the technical, tactical skills necessary to kind of, and the physical skills necessary to perform the actions. So they are getting the dependency elements. So whenever they do need us, they've got us, but they've also got the autonomy to kind of go off and on their own. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Sorry, Jen, I, I don't know if it was a question for you or me. Was it just, so, um, I mean, everything we're talking about here links to psychological safety, doesn't it? And um, when we talk about, you know, what has coaching changed, I think if we talk about football, for example, because you can kind of pull really nice examples or not so nice examples of the traditional football coach. Um, and. I think and historically players might may not have felt psychological safe, but also coaches as well. So if you think about a coach and let's, let's hyper, use a high performance environment, um, a coach might be feeling or worried that if they're not, you know, um, performing, then um, they'll lose their job, they lose their income. So then does that then um, manifest certain behaviours that create psychological unsafety within their players um, and I think if some if we're not if a coach isn't able to make mistakes and admit failure and ask for help then are the players going to be able to do the same so I do think it's a huge kind of societal cultural um, issue that it is changing because we're talking more about kind of well-being and mental health and um, being able to kind of be open and speak about it much more um, so I, I agree there, there is an element that there is a change, but I do think there's still that undercurrent of uh, do it, does every um, coach feel psychologically safe in their role? Um, yeah, I guess <laughs> in a nutshell, that's my, my response to that. I, I think the interesting thing on top of that, Amy, is, um, and we spoke about this at length, is that going back to the initial point that I made, there's a lot of what out there. There's a lot of what you do and and even where to find it but the how part is the key part so whilst we're aware of you know all the terms and you know look, culture coaches and psychological safety that we need to embed and vulnerability the how part is really impossible sorry it's not impossible it's really hard for people to kind of accept and understand so I jump on a webinar listen to this podcast going from A to B and I go oh okay that resonates let me let me dive into that and then I go back into my environment and I go okay <laughs> there's other pieces and you can but it goes back to the point you made at the very start around support 
how do I bounce off what the scenarios are? So say a um, simple example this morning with coaches and players in a room together, just having conversations about what if scenarios and making them into even if scenarios. Like that type of collaboration, that type of change in the dynamic of the coaches need to have all the answers. And then also expanding into the question of where does your coaching take place and moving from it only takes place between the constraint of, you know, 7 p.m. and, and 8.30. So now we're going to check in with our athletes, then checking in with you, reflecting out of the session. And it just starts to build a little bit like that, where there's, as you mentioned, the autonomies there, but there's also the connectivity within the session and they're relating to each other and the environment, as well as the mastery of whatever takes place within it. I think you make a great point. And I think really what it comes back to what Amy was saying, it's really about understanding the individuals you're working with and understanding not just well, what we're going to do with them, but how are we going to get those particular individuals to really take on board the concept that we're trying to apply, if that makes sense. I think one of the questions I would have in there for you, though, is that how, just, you know, maybe just expand on that a little bit, because I think there's a lot of coaches out there, and this is, you know, over the last three or four years, I've, I've done a lot of coach education um, for the governing body as well. And one of the things I often uh, I've observed is a lot of coaches have a really strong um, confidence in the what they know what they're going to do but actually when it doesn't quite work they don't understand how they're going to get it back on track um and then it then i always i always question well if you didn't know how you're going to get it back on track did you know how you were doing it in the first place or were you just winging it um and then maybe just speak to just how important an understanding of the why is as well Absolutely. Two key terms. And I think you've, you've answered it in that circle that you came back to there, like understanding from the get go. There's, lo there's loads of entry and exit points into this. It's not that, you know, I'm X amount of years down the line now. I can't say I don't know. Or why am I doing this? Like I have a conversation with people here. I'm not a footballer. I'm working in a football environment. So there's loads of times where I'm saying, why are we doing that? <laughs> Can you explain that to me? And they're like, okay, yeah. So the willingness to explain and to accept me in is brilliant. So that's one thing I would say to clubs who are out there, just be open-minded that actually your CPD or your staff don't always have to be from the same sport and it doesn't have to be on-site. You can go and explore different environments. Again, the how, what you observe when you go there and how you do that, we, you know, it's, it's sometimes being a little bit vulnerable and saying, can I come and watch you netball session can I come and watch your rugby session and when you go there you navigate that maybe you bring somebody maybe you reflect with somebody maybe you hop on a webinar and you're you're not afraid in that breakout room to say okay listen I experienced this recently I don't know what I was looking at I defaulted to technical because that was my safety space and I work with a, a group of coaches uh, female coaches from the rugby league and we did that last week we went to a netball game and we talked about see feel here when we came into the environment what do you feel um, what are you seeing? Let's close our eyes. What are we hearing? And it was gold. It was just absolute gold. And so, you know, I do get very passionate and excitable about these kind of things, but they hopefully will be able to package that and take it to their environments and spaces. Don't want to be naive and think yeah. that all environments are perfect and welcome, but it's it's an opportunity for you to go, well, actually, I saw this style of play. I saw a player-led warm-up, which you don't have in rugby and netball is yeah. kind of a default. Let's have a discussion about that. I think it's a really great point that you talk about, you know, the, the feeling uh, aspect of things. So I guess, you know, within that, then is there any particular guidance that you give them? So, you know, if they're, if it's a new experience for them, potentially um, any guidance in terms of what they're meant to be feeling or how they're meant to be feeling or what they're tuning into to kind of pick up on that emotional feeling, if that makes sense. 
gosh, it would be awful for me to tell people what to feel um, or to guide them. But what I would say is your starting point could be to write down, um, and there's formal ways to do this, but essentially in a quick fix, you could write down on a piece of paper, everybody that's in your world, in your environment, and look at the clusters, look at the strength of the relationship, see what the similarities are, see what's missing in the gaps. And from there, then when you do go to a different environment, have an idea of, um, who's coaching what they're coaching and how they're coaching and what are you picking up as a guideline there's a few templates out there um bob muir and andy abraham have done some great templates to look at breaking that down so people can focus on coaching behaviors they can focus on um the relationship between the athlete and the coaches and what whatever environment you're in or actually the environment itself and the sport what what's that offering where the con uh, the constrictions to what they're doing what, what's different if i have a field versus if i'm on a launch as a rowing coach and i'm following behind or actually if i'm a shooting coach where no um the coaches don't speak to the athletes while they're shooting for a prolonged period of time. So just it's re what's relevant in your environment to feel initially and then to reflect on that and then have a framework that you can use. So there's, there's a number out there, but yeah. the, the who's coaching, what you're coaching and how they're coaching would be a great start. Awesome. So, you know, we, we, I think we've really got into a thick of a conversation here, but I really, I really don't want to, you know, forget about why we're here. Um, you know, you both give me great definitions or an understanding of what your perception is on coaching as a whole. Um, but maybe just helps us now, you know, leading into the book, debunk some of the myths of sports coaching. What are they? Um, how have we established that they're myths and where do they even come from? And, and do, do, you know, and on that as well, do you think any of them are sports specific coaching myths as well? Do you want me to go off, Jen? So in terms of book, I guess um, one of the things that we wanted to do was look at kind of what our day-to-day -day coaches kind of might be discussing and are they discussing the right things? Is there truth in it? Is there not? Um, and I think Jen is obviously working in, in the field on a daily basis and um, kind of we discussed, you know, what does Jen experience when she's working with coaches? And I think that's kind of where the start of the book came from. Um, I'll, I'll do a shameless plug in that um, if anyone does want to buy the book, um, it's available on Amazon on, and the Sequoia um, webpage, but there is a, a hefty discount on Amazon at the minute, so um, do get it sooner rather than later. Anyway, yeah, I think it's like £14 at the minute, is it, Jen? So, something like that, so absolute yeah. bargain. And, and I guess that's the point of, of the book, and we wanted it to be accessible, um, you know, we didn't want it to be too academic, um, you know, we wanted it to be easy to read, um, but obviously still be well underpinned from a, a research perspective. So anyway, yeah, um, I mean, we've got myths from, you know, the 10,000 hours uh, myths, um, you know, where did that come from, um, to myths around, do we need to care, do we need to, oh, and the notion around career to be kind, um, myths around the coach-athlete relationship, myths around um, coaching men and women and, and are they different? Um, so we've got a real kind of wide range and we wanted to come from different kind of um, perspectives. So physiologists, um, nutritionists, psychologists, um, sociologists or people from a more sociological background and obviously real coaching uh, experts, academics, researchers, pracademics um, and those working in the field. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a kind of a taste of the book. Um, 
one of the things that we we did want to talk about today is a few specific well a couple, we wanted to touch on a few specific chapters that we think are important maybe that link to some of the conversations that we've had today already um, and just give some of the listeners an insight into some of the chapters if that's okay that's absolutely fine and i'm sure that you know a lot, a lot of the stuff that you're going to talk about there'll probably be some examples in there um and you know it's great to hear that you know you guys are putting book together and in a part of the reason why i put this podcast together as well is to try and give people the information in a more palatable way sometimes you know you go and read these academic papers and it's just like what the hell are they talking about <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing my masters at the moment and it's just like i'm looking at this here and thinking to myself just just simplify it i know you've got to get so many words to get this qualification done <laughs> but just simplify it <laughs> um I- but yeah, yeah hopefully, hopefully we can we can you know spend the next 30 40 minutes just to kind of unpack some of the stuff in the book and you know and keep it as simple as possible for everyone yeah and i totally agree so like obviously i work in a university in academia and there's always this argument around you know do we need to use certain language do we like i i'll admit i'll, I'll i've googled words in journal articles <laughs> and i'm in the field so um, i think it, that's a really important point because um, not all coaches, you know, are doing a master's or are at PhD level. Um, and, you know, why should they be? Um, so for me, I think it's really important that we make the, this um, our work accessible. And hopefully that's what the book's been able to do. Awesome. So who's going to start us off then? Myth number one, what is it? How did we, how did we come across it and how do we unpack it? Jen, do you want to kick off or should we... Yeah, yeah, cool. Let's do that. So, I mean, we've been talking a lot about um, support and social um, spaces or opportunities to learn. So I'll kick right into this amazing chapter. So it's chapter number three. It's in communities of practice. And we're we're just steeped to have. I mean, there's Amy said about accessibility um, and, and collaboration. We have over 30 contributors to this book. And then within that, we've 12 um, different countries included so that type of diversity made us give us kind of a, a multiple multi-perspective on it um, and this community practice it's a term that has in different spaces I've been into is really familiar and then other spaces is not at all and the idea is is that um, uh, Dan, Tiago and um, Don who've put this chapter together are trying to to look at four particular different areas where people who are saying oh I've I've heard this term community practice we should all get together and we should just have one and they're all sharing and A equals B (laughs) and what they're trying to do is bust some of the myths and terms and the chapter is really well written and talking about just on the back of like language and the feel of a chapter and understanding it like coaching isn't easy and it's a massive responsibility so whilst we do want to have that connectivity with the research and have our kind of underpinned by evidence what we do we also have to take it on our shoulders that we're taking a massive undertaking on of people in front of us and committing in some aspects committing their career or their hours their free time um, to do this so the community of practice they discuss four different myths so it's um bang for your buck in this chapter already um, um, myth number one is everything is a community of practice. And what they wanted to look at there was that we do all belong to a community um, that's, you know, your home, your work, your school, and then understanding that landscape is really important, but not everything is. So if you bunk athletes and coaches in a room, so say that session that I did this morning, that isn't a community of practice, it's a social learning space. 
and there's multiple spaces that we can have where learning takes place and you know we would hope that we would look at people as learners all of us you know coaching staff performance support team included so all learning about each other and the space within the room and from each other but actually though our common goal as athletes and coaches might be the same or similar um the practice is different so what the coaches need to know and what they share is different from the athletes so um understanding that there's the, not everything is a, a community of practice the next one they look at is community of practice often become echo chambers and this was really interesting because we want to look at the unconscious bias so you know our construct what made us who we are we talked earlier on about why we're doing what we do but how often we challenge that what we know and are we seeing in that a great quote are we seeing the world as we are or as it is and we know it's only you know beyond our eyes or only within our, our space that we can see that so we we as social learners should lead to plan and and look at the spaces and look at the people within that to um kind of really see what kind of diversity of thought we have in it and is it a safe space as we talked about earlier for people to challenge and understand and be vulnerable um, so I'm not going to give away the juice of all the chapter, but I'll keep going so that people can dive into that. Communities of practice can be established overnight and are an easy solution. So this goes back to the entry point I made, and this is beautifully put in the book here. Um, I may just read it a little bit here. Myth busted. Social learning leadership requires substantial investment on a number of levels. Framing, planning, group interactions is, is quite complex and challenging, and it requires careful thought on a continuous basis. So what was interesting for me is that what I'd started to see in the different spaces I operated, that people would run webinars or conferences and they tag an hour at the end, community practice, 4.30 to 5.30. And that lack of maybe depth of understanding with, of course, a positive intent, but it, uh, that meant that we were not doing a sustainable over time setup here. We're not framing that. Um, and Don Vincent has done a lot of work around obviously on this particular topic and some of his research has come back to say some people it took them over a month to engage so we have to look at that sustainable element and maybe maybe the labeling was wrong on some of those and you know could have been could say well i've got a network here so that's a social learning space i've got a mentor mentee relationship that's a social learning space and they come under that umbrella of cop so a load of stuff to unpick in that chapter and another one which is uh, i've explored and being thankful to be part of some projects when I worked with UK coaching exploring this um, and when the virtual world became more prevalent um, or necessary rather was communities of practice require a master practitioner as a leader so the fear sometimes and I definitely see it within sport fear is probably a strong word but there's an awareness here or a hesitant a hesitancy to jump in to be involved in communities of practice because I don't know everything as a leader to host it so I could bring X amount of people in a room, but what if I don't know the answer? And it's what they talk about brilliantly in this um, kind of debunking or sharing is that, yes, you need to know the members. Yes, you need to have an awareness of the context, but the content that you don't. So like they talk about 25 years of collective research and experience, as well as building on the shoulders of giants within the chapter. So it's just that idea of at its basic premise, who's in your network, who's missing from your network, what communities are you part of, and what does your landscape look like, and who are the people within, what are the relationships, what's, what are you getting from each of those spaces, and then if you're in a education manager position, or if you're in a system builder position in an organization, 
are you really aware of some of these myths and the echo chambers or the common goal or the community of practice tagged on to something how much depth of thought has gone into it so I'll come up for air but it's a brilliant chapter and sometimes for some people they might be like Oof, I'm standing on my own and I coach on a Sunday morning from half 10 to half 11 how, how is this relevant to me it's really relevant there's lots of you're already in loads of communities but are you in, a, in, in one that can help you grow are you you know um, is it a, a cool learning space for you so yeah Jen do you think um talking linking to what we were talking about earlier and if if a community practice kind of if if there was one that was met all the criteria do you think that there's also that element of do people feel safe in that community and then if they do feel safe does that mean they'll learn more grow more develop as a, a community together to meet their aims um, and this, these, these are not questions just for you. These are just my thoughts. I'm saying, yeah, look at her putting me on the spot in the middle of a podcast. I mean, you can see why we have rich conversations and books come out of our conversations. Like, listen, you're totally right. Um, this is, if we go back to one of the myths they discuss, they talk about knowing the people in the room. Mm-hmm. So who, who's coming in the context of this com- community practice if you are in that facilitator role? And that can come down to simplistic things like who's hogging and all the air in that room who is uh, listening with the intent to speak and not actually process and reflect you know the person isn't finished and they're yeah buts yeah buts and jumping across and that's a, a simplistic part of it I don't I don't know if we can say I'm sure I'm sure there's some correlations and and the book does link to this but I'm sure we can't say like you come to one of these and you learn. Mm. I think there's an openness, there's a longer period of time, there's your own personal journey that you're on, but it's definitely an amazing space to be part of where if we have over a period of time, I'm with a group, a UK sport programme for the last 12 months, and when we meet and connect, sometimes I come away and it could be weeks down the line, it could be months down the line where I go, oh, connecting dots, sparks fly, I'm here. Um, but at the time, they don't actually put me under pressure to give me, a, you know, what was your key takeaway from today? Because sometimes I need longer to go back into my environment and understand it and unpick it. And that's the safe space of these communities practice or social learning spaces that I might be able to operate in, that I can come back to that. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, great, good questions, Amy, thanks. Uh, wow, um, absolutely blown away. There's a lot, there's a lot in there. Um, and I'm going to attempt to relay back to you what I've heard so that we can make sure we've got clarity and then we can uh, hopefully unpack it further. Um, but before we do that, we're just going to go to a quick break. Jenny, thank you very much. For that. I've absolutely just, you know, shared loads of information. And I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to try and attempt to relay back to you what I've heard and, and you can make sure I'm on the right track. Um, first thing, obviously, regarding the community practice, obviously there's so many... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba misconceptions to what a community practice is um i'm currently doing a lot of mentoring work and um within that itself 
you know, when people say, oh yeah, I'm developing a community practice, I'm trying to put together a community practice, people think it's one thing or the other thing, you know, they're not really distinguishing whether it is, is it a mentee, mentor relationship um, with, with several people involved? Is it an opportunity for people to network with like-minded individuals? Is it an opportunity to kind of um, have almost, if you like, a mastermind group around a specific topic? You know, so there, there is you know, these misconceptions or confusions as to exactly what it is. And I think one of the key things that really jumped out at me there for you, from you was that, having that person at the, at, at the head of the group, if you like, leading that. Um, so obviously then it, and it calls into question some of the leadership skills. And one of the things I always said is that a, a great coach or a great leader is someone that can actually look at themselves and understand that they don't have all the answers um, and it, that's okay. But they it, having that understanding, they're halfway to maybe solving that gap or filling that gap, if you like. And it could be that, right, I might have put this group together, but me knowing that this is one of the gaps in my learning, I can bring in an external individual or potentially lead on someone else in the group that might have an expert knowledge in that particular area. Um, and then it becomes a bit more of a collaborative functioning group and community of practice, if you like. Um, so that's the first piece. And you know, the, the second piece I kind of really took up on there is that it's understanding the real reason as to why that community practice is in place. Is it to focus on a specific topic? Is it to focus on uh, maybe just networking and connecting individuals? Um, and, you know, really having a good understanding of what the, I guess, like I said, the, what the why is for the, the community in the first place. Um, but then obviously that then links into the next piece, which is understanding what are the goals of the people that have now joined that community? Are they in alignment with the, the, the actual reason for the community in the first place, if that makes sense? Um, do the people know why they're there? Or have they just jumped on a bandwagon? Yeah, hey, I'm in a community of practice, um, and I think it's really important, for, you know, for those questions to then be clarified and, and, and understood. And then beyond that, I think it's also questioning those participants themselves. You talked there about having that, that that almost cold reflection, having time to take away and and think about what's just happened, what you know, what how's this information now impacted on you, and how are you going to go and implement it? But I think for me and my own experiences, I think it's really important to have that immediate hot hot reflection. Um, and then maybe set sort of some sort of structure or time frame where we might touch base again in two weeks and see, right, okay, you've had this hot reflection. Um, and it's something that I do with some of the mentees that I work with is, right, okay, what are your immediate thoughts? Right, I'm now going to leave you with those thoughts. And it might just give you a few questions to think about around that to might, that might potentially provoke some thought and help you unpack it further. Um, but then, well, let's touch base again in maybe a week or two or even, even longer where you can then give me your cold reflection around what's happened. And if you've had an opportunity to maybe implement some of the stuff and see what it's actually brought back to you. So, you know, I think that piece is really key as well. Then the final piece that kind of really jumped out at me was that it's just challenging their perception, their awareness and their understanding of the whole process itself. How impactful was the process for them? What have they found impactful? What have they found useful? And obviously those are bits of information we can then lean on to ensure that the community practice is doing indeed what it is set up to do um, and just how impactful it has been. And if there's any slight variation that individual needs that we might need catering to, linking back into what Amy said earlier about really understanding the individuals, understanding the people that we're working with to make sure that their goals are being met. There's a lot in there. Um, I've blabbed on a lot more than um, I expected to, but hopefully I'm on the right track and hopefully that's given some sort of clarity if I am on the right track to people listening to this. Yeah, and I think um, both yourself and Jennifer, you've mentioned kind of, we, we don't have to be the expert. So 
Jen goes in and I'm, I'm going to take upon here and say you've led a community of practice, Jen. Yeah. Okay. Well so Nailed it. Jen's led the community of practice with a variety of different coaches. Now, Jen isn't an expert in all of them sports from a, you know, a technical and tactical perspective. But again, I'm being nice to you, Jen, but Jen's got very good interpersonal skills. Mm. Um, so she's able to facilitate an environment where people feel listened to, people feel safe. Um, and people feel also probably quite challenged in that process, but in a way that, you know, they feel comfortable to fail. And for me, I think that's one of the key elements of whoever's leading um, yeah. a community of practice to be able to um, create a, an environment that is comfortable yet challenging at the same time. And I, I think you make a great point then. I think one of the key things, you know, certainly when I've uh, attempted to, you know, as Jen has lead a community of practice, um, that we kind of really, I, I, how important is the technical tactical support? Um, I think it, obviously you need to have some understanding of the sport or some understanding of the game, but I think what's really helped me in most of the, uh, I guess, groups and networks that I've been part of, whether they've been specifically football or wider sports, is the curiosity piece. And actually having that curiosity and the inquisitive mindset to maybe ask, maybe thought-provoking, deeper questions around challenging the awareness, really. Um, and one of the things, you know, that I, I you know, done a qualification a couple of years ago, and one of the tasks that we had to kind of do was identify or give clarity on what our philosophies were. Um, for me, I, I realise over years it's really shifted from just being... You know, your typical, I'm going to help players become more technically and tactically proficient and they're going to become high-level performers. And actually, you know, I really shifted um, for, what me, for me towards more, I want to develop individuals, whether, they, whether they're athletes in, in the case of working players, or whether they're coaches in the case of working with coaches, I want to develop individuals that become more consciously aware of not just what they're doing, but why, how, and where it should be done, if that makes sense. Um, and in, in, in doing that, it's essentially giving them more food for thought. And sometimes it's just leaving them with a question. Um, not really, uh, you know, if you're like, you know, if you're in a psychologist world, I'm not really closing the loop for them, just leaving it open for a little while. Um, eventually we have to get around to the point of closing that loop so that there's not just left in thinking, what's this guy doing? But you know, getting to that point. I don't know what your thoughts are on that and whether that kind of ties into some of the stuff that you guys have maybe experienced yourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it kind of, when you were speaking there, it kind of just struck me again back to the responsibility we have as a coach or when you step into that role or an assistant coach or a physio, um, that every conversation matters. So the intent behind you thinking about your planning, back to one of my words around the, the coaching side, that it isn't just planning the session, it's planning about planning interactions um, planning the um, the time and the place. Sometimes they're organic, which is fantastic, but the the intent behind it and what you're trying to leave them with. So there isn't that ambiguity on oh, what do they mean when someone says I did well? Is it in the session? Does that mean I'm going to start? Does it what like and who's giving me that message and um, the flex and adaptability that we have to understand that if somebody sees something different uh, to us, what what actually are they seeing and how is it? You know what's what's important for them to know in a piece of information that we're sharing here and uh, what can I learn about myself I think one of the key things just to, to close off that chapter would be I have seen some communities of practice where people who are facilitating lack of self-awareness and 
that's where we kind of go back to well, emotional intelligence or we go back to them having a support network or group or peer and they're able to reflect that there's that thread of normalizing reflection that it isn't just when I go on a webinar it's it's almost every day thinking about what happened today who was in my world how did I react what did that inform for the next interaction day at work conversation etc etc so yeah two key things that was wrapping up in what you said there in my head of around reflection and connection awesome um Amy, I'm going to take the step of passing the baton over to you around what might be the second myth that we're going to unpack. Well, the, um, we're going kind of one extreme and jumping into another completely different area. But um, I know you've had um, Shaquille O'Neal on um, this podcast, so I wanted to talk about the um, the clutch chapter. So basically the chapter around kind of what clutch performance is, um, clutch performance and clutch performers by uh, Matthew Schweikel and Patricia Jackman or Trish Jackman. Because um, I think one, people maybe aren't fully aware of the term clutch. Um, and then two, we can maybe unpick, you know, the, the, the truth or, or the myth element of it. Um, and without kind of, ruining the next kind of five or ten minutes I think we will probably summarize in that it's all about you know um knowing the performer um and kind of the, but there are some really nice takeaway messages I think in this chapter and practical coaching and recommendations as well so I really like the chapter because there are it, it really makes us think about you know what how do we create certain coaching situations to put our athletes under pressure to you know to be able to make mistakes so linking back to the whole you know psychological safety element of um you know how can we encourage athletes to take them risks more often um, so yeah so from a um I don't know if you wanted to mention about Shaquille O'Neal or no, I, 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 got, I just want to get straight into the heart of it really <laughs> okay um, anyone anyone that's not aware of um what clutch is I think it'll be a great point to start off what yeah. exactly is clutch because you know uh, there is so many it's similar to what we were talking about earlier so many terms that we come across um that we just I think subconsciously we just assume people are going to know what it means because it's maybe an in word or you know it, it's something that people to discuss on a regular basis but there's still people outside of that are maybe not vulnerable enough to say actually i don't know what that means yeah totally um i think so it's i think it originates more from a, an american um terminology um and i think so in the chapter it they talk about how it was first used in like 1929 in baseball so the term in the clutch and um, refers to um a baseball player hitting a good shot at a like more a, a high pressured moment um, but then you might have heard it being used within basketball like there's examples of michael jordan where he'll hit like buzzer shots to win the game so um, I think one of the problems with clutch performance or the definitions um, and from reading the chapter, you'll see that there's many different definitions. So I think people might know it as, you know, performing well under pressure in pressurized moments and then that leads to improved performance. Um, but from in the chapter, we can see that, you know, the, there's no actual statistical evidence to say that clutch exists. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, there's, there's just not enough 
research been done on it because it's it's difficult to measure you can't really manipulate that environment you can't put like people in buzzer situations because even if you do is it you know do they feel personally feel that pressure at that particular time um but what i think is really nice from this chapter is that um matthew and trish try and get the reader to think a little bit differently about clutch um and rather than you know, thinking, right, it only occurs with certain athletes in certain situations. Can we um, think more around, you know, why do certain athletes perform well in these certain situations? So they're more likely to have a willingness to take that, you know, buzzer shot or to take that risk under pressure. Um, so that comes from this element of mental toughness. Um, so rather than kind of like as coaches, what we need to think about is how do we create, I know we just said it's hard to study, but how can we create more pressurized situations when working with our athletes? Um, how can we get them to focus more on the process rather than just the outcome? Um, because rather than thinking about it as just, you know, winning that, um, scoring that last second goal or, or basket, taking the risk or being able to have the confidence to be able to do that and um, so for me that's kind of the take-home message of that chapter um, and there's some really nice examples of yeah. different just, athletes just on that then um i guess what a lot of people probably will be thinking is and rightly you say you what you rightly said so that it, you know it's, it's almost impossible to recreate that pressure um so what what does good practice look like working towards developing the type of pressure because you know there's so many different ways in which we can do it whether that's through different constraints that we put on whether it's a time constraint whether it's a um you know overloads underloads whether that's you know different situations whether that's um putting individual constraints on the on, on the on the athlete themselves but or even just in some cases coaches may interpret this okay i want to put more pressure and i'm just going to have a go at them the whole time while they're doing it but the reality is you're not going to be able to create that type of pressure where you might have 60,000 fans, you've got two seconds to go, and actually if you miss the shot, we're out, we're out of the competition. Um, so what, what are some of the basic things that maybe coaches could start to consider doing in, in terms of working towards developing some sort of pressure in that respect? Yes, you're totally right. And I, personally, I think we can never create, you know, match their pressure or, you know, final their pressure. But you've just given some really nice examples there of how we create a little bit more pressure mm. um, although these are kind of experimental studies there are there is a bit of research that talks about how if players warm up in a more pressurized situation then that translates more successfully into competitive performance so um, again that it's kind of lab-based experiments but I do think there's uh, a point to take from that in that coaches to think about you know how do my athletes warm up um, are they even thinking about the competition? You know, how can we put them in little, you know, small-sided little games, or you know, in like put time constraints constraints on them, give individual targets to to, to people on the pitch or on the car, um, to kind of get them to be thinking more around, um, you know, what do, what what are my goals for this individual performance? How do I um, kind of uh, engage in the process um, mm. throughout so yeah I think 
knowing the individual is something that I'll keep coming back to. And that links to another chapter around goal setting. I think, you know, setting specific goals um, that are, you know, difficult, but not too difficult, putting that little bit of pressure on an individual or putting a really hard goal on with somebody, if you know that they can handle that. Um, but pushing people's buttons in certain ways, I think, you know, it's very context specific. So I don't want to give you yeah. kind of the magic ball. I don't know if Jen's got any examples from, from football or the environment she works in. Yeah, I love this topic. I think there's loads of stuff there that um, that, that I, I definitely would have said or witnessed or tried. Um, I've had coaches that have tried to mimic like game time starts um, the week before, thinking of the team, the wider team, um, uh, very mindful of the language they use as continuity in the situations in the game and pressure situations or perceived pressure situations um, where we might play in an 80,000 or 10,000 if you're indoor in basketball arena and you can't hear the plays. So the, the kind of connection to the sideline might be cut off a little bit. We might use colours if the stats or the coaches have seen something and they want to relay it and they verbally can't get it across. They might look at adaptations to that type of communication and the non-verbal approach. Um, but I also think there's definitely a, a meatier conversation to look at this, uh, as I've heard over the years, this threshold test that they want to put on. And it would it does feed in nicely into the resilience chapter, but it's looking at that, that idea that coaches think that they need to be cruel to be kind, which is the care chapter, um, to, to push people. So then they've overcome something and they've created a traumatic event or perceived event that then the athletes strive beyond. Um, and that resilience chapter, again, <laughs> seven myths explored in that one chapter where they look at people who've tagged on to, oh, they're just resilient people. Um, whereas actually Mustafa and Jolyn in the chapter look at that continuum and that context of it's context specific. It's a contextual phenomenon of, of one person who's really a link into clutch, one person who's really confident to take that game winning shot or to lead the team on an out of bounds play if it's in basketball or to take the penalty. You know, in different life situations, they might not have that same type of confidence, if you like. So the resilience building of um, looking at the it's the, you know an obvious essential psychological factor but actually within your environment what are you doing to shape and to um have a representation of what they're going to face as close as possible whether that's putting noise on if you're in a noisy stadium or it's all those other things that we mentioned and i i, I worked for a good time and still quite close with alan Keane, who was coaching the gb men's team yeah. in basketball the the underage and I think it was under 20s he went away to and they had great success in the Euros and I he came back and I was like talk to me Al talk to me about the experience now he is self-aware um he's doing his his postdoc in uh, regulation so he's, he's finely tuned um in the research that underpins everything he does he's well connected he's got a lot of the great stuff in place and he said do you know what helped me Jen being there <laughs> living it so in all, if you want to look at somebody who's like at the head of their game, really tuned into everything they do, really self-aware um, as a coach and connecting with the athletes, etc. All the stuff we've talked about today and still only getting to the semi-final of the Euros. That was what was the next stage for him to to do that. Now, he can put that in his backpack and now start to move on in his coaching and look at well, what did I experience there? I reflected on this. These are the behaviors I saw. This is how I handled that situation. This is what things presented but um back to that chapter they you know some one of the really interesting myths they 
talk about is the responsibility of the individual. Um, but like I mentioned earlier on, and we've it's threaded through the conversation today, a lot of the research that's mentioned in this chapter circles around the available support the individual has being a key factor to their ability to um, disseminate the experience and, yeah. and piece it into something that's beneficial for this level of excellence that they're striving towards. And I, I definitely agree with you. I think, you know, we actually had Alan Keane on the podcast, uh, I think it was episode 22, and he talks, he, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he gave us an example of a situation where it was really about the awareness piece and, and having that vulnerability and developing that relationship that you guys, you know, referred to in many ways um, throughout the conversation already, that he allowed the players to, under, or the athletes in this case, to understand that, you know, they can have expectations of him, but he's also got expectations, as, as, as much as he's got expectations of them. And one of them, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the example he gave was he, in some, in some way, shape, or form, asked athletes, right, what is it that you want from me? Um, how can I aid you and how can I bring value to your performance? Um, and then there was, a, I think, if, if, I, if my mind doesn't fail me, he had a situation where there was a game going on and he basically lost it. He, he was completely lost of focus. He was out of it. He was giving them, uh, you know, he just wasn't in full control. And then I think one of the, one of the players actually turned around and said to him, coach, remember that thing that you told us that, that we told you that we don't like you doing, you're doing it now or, or, or something along the lines that it really kind of just put into perspective. Again, going back to the piece earlier, we talked about uh, being vulnerable enough um, as a coach to understand that actually I don't have all the answers and something that I need to get called out to um, and not it doesn't have to be a negative experience it can be one that we both learn from so I know that for instance even in my own coaching I'm working with athletes I'm, uh, you know, I'm open enough and honest enough uh, vulnerable enough to let them know that actually this is something I've never even tried before let's see how this goes give me your feedback and we'll go from there and then you know they don't necessarily always see it as me like I said if I go back to you know we're going full circle again going back to the, the aspect of the coach in some cases, I'm going to be one driving the coach. Sometimes we're going to both be passengers on that journey together. And sometimes I'm going to have to give you a push because your car has broken down. Now, as long as we're aware that, that my role in that might change at any given point, but actually we're always going to be on the journey together. I think that's a really key piece for me. And really, you know, to listen to what you're saying there, it's like actually having the humility and that self-awareness to basically just ask yourself, right, okay, what am I doing in this moment? How is it impacting, whether it's positive or negative? And being able to take on that initial self-critique and accept that actually I don't have all the answers. And, you know, the, the, I think the quote is, you know, the eyeball can't see itself. So sometimes you have to wait for an external perspective before you get the full picture or a clearer understanding of what that picture is. Um, yeah. Again, I've rambled on a bit, but you guys... No, got no, I think it's brilliant. And I think... I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the how, like I'm thinking about people who are listening, thinking, right, okay, um, I can't, I can do this. I understand it. I can take it into my environment, but actually the reality is if I want to get to those little um, snapshot videos, wherever, whatever social media platform you see them on, where it's like a basketball game and Steve Kerr, who's played for the Chicago Bulls is now letting Steph Curry lead a halftime or timeout. And they're like, Oh, wow, this is athlete led. The reality is that for a lot of coaches who have parents on the sideline who've possibly played a sport, then they see the coach not leading something. They go, what in my day, in my day, hang on, you're not getting, what's this lad doing here? What's this woman doing here on the sideline, letting them run wild or there's something happening on 
the pitch, the court, the track, wherever it is, and the athletes are navigating it and they've worked on it in the session over an X amount of time. And now the coach is saying, hey, listen, I want you to problem solve here. So there is an element of connectivity to the parents to let them know what's happening. This is the the kind of way of working that you have in your mind. But then there's the courage to carry that through that sometimes informal qualifications isn't discussed that, you know, you're just going, you've done tick, 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 in you go. And all of a sudden, here's 35 kids, 24 tennis rackets, six balls and a broken net. Off you go. You know, <laughs> um, so there's there's some great stuff. Yeah. yeah, some great stuff there with that to, to kind of bring everybody into the same picture so they know. But then Wimbledon FC did it with their underage there six yeah. months ago. And so I think it was Jamie or James, the coach down there. Um, after I saw it online, I just tweeted him. I said, awesome job. Player led, still in league, high up important game and the players was like we got this you know and but how many hours went into that prep and that belief and that's you know and I think that's the key piece and I think you know that exact situation that you 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 know you've talked about then I think we kind of touched on it slightly to start the conversation everyone's perceptions of what coaching actually looks like and I think I've actually had situations where I've I'm kind of like that. I like the players express themselves explore and I do a lot of guided discovery and guide you know guided um style coaching and Sometimes, you know, I've actually had a parent come up to me one time and say, well, so when are you going to start coaching? Well, no, I've been coaching. But I think it's, it's just, I think for coaches to kind of um, not just fall into their trap of let the game be the teacher or anything like that, but actually know there's been a lot of prep that's gone into this and it might have been subtle things, but actually I'm now trusting the job that I've done to this point. Now let you guys go and have a bit of free reign, bit of freedom and show me how much you've understood or learned from what we've actually done in the, in the build up to this. And that's the that's the key piece and it's interesting you know amy you mentioned earlier about you know how i've had Shaq on the podcast and one of the key things he mentioned in the conversation i had with him was that um when it came to game day phil jackson said right any issues you gotta deal with it Hmm. you deal with it i'm not getting involved it's match is you know we've done i've done my job before we got to before we got to game day so if you have something to deal with, you deal with it now. You deal with it amongst yourselves and we can unpack it later, but I'm not helping you right now. In fact, I probably am helping you. This probably comes back to the whole thing about being cool to be nice. I'm throwing you in the deep end and leaving and seeing if you're going to sink or swim. But I think coaches can only get to that point if they have faith and confidence in the work that's gone on beforehand to say, actually, I've, I think I've done the right things to, to, to prepare you appropriately. So I'm not, I can allow you to feel like you're either going to sink or swim, but actually I'm, I'm trusting that you're still going to float regardless. And have the self-awareness to do that. So you, I've said self-awareness and like quite a lot throughout this um, podcast today, but like my other area of research is kind of micing up our coaches and getting them to kind of verbalise what they're thinking as they're coaching and then kind of reflecting on that as it's going. So you know, one of the main things that link to what you've just said there is a lot of coaches will be like, right, they're not doing this, I need to step in now. But then if they'll ask themselves, well, why? And by the time they've questioned why and then thought, hang on, I'm going to just step back a a minute and see what happens here, the athletes already corrected themselves or, you know, being able to take five minutes to to realise and and yeah learn themselves so they don't always have to step in and they don't always have to give feedback to the athlete and I think going back to what you're both saying there you know allowing the athlete to self-discover is coaching and it's good coaching 
but society and we watch TV and we're like, that coach isn't really saying anything or doing much. You know, are they even doing their job properly? And that's the this pressure between what we think we should look like as a coach and, and what we should really do like on court. Um, so yeah, just to give my two pence worth. Awesome. You know, I'm, I'm really conscious of time. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be able to unpack another myth, but I don't think we're going to have enough time to do so. But maybe what we can uh, finish off with is maybe some tips from either one of you or both of you around what are some of the key considerations coaches could be making uh, and maybe some basic um, concept that potentially could apply around actually just being more impactful as coaches in general. Just to, just to start, Jen, and I'll let you jump in, but for me, uh, and going back to the book, one of the key themes is understanding the individual. So it doesn't matter, you know, how good your technical and tactical knowledge is. If you don't know how to communicate that effectively to the individual, then no development or athlete development is, is going to take place, in my opinion. Um, so for me, that's the, the key message kind of from our discussions today and, and from the book. Um, if you haven't got the book already, go and grab it. That's my summary of that. Um, not from a push on our side. You're looking at 20 chapters and there's there's not even maybe a half of what you really could explore and challenge in your own thinking. So there's some great, great topics that we've mentioned today that people can dive into. But it's a pick up and drop book. It's a when it when you're ready, uh, when a situation comes up, um, if you have a bit of spare time, and that's why we put it together like that. So, the the structure of the chapters, the QR codes that allow you connect with the researchers and follow their work, um, amazing. But linking to one probably key point will be self awareness. Starting point: How are you arriving at the situation? What what does Anna Stoddard puts in her research? What's your biography? What like what what's your makeup um, to, to bring you to this situation and how am I arriving at the situation? Then if you connect that to Amy's, who are these people in front of me? The only missing part of that nice puzzle, which people were like, what? Only those parts, there's loads, would be the environment. And there's a great line in the resilience chapter, which people are probably familiar with, and they talk about a wilting flower. And that, you know, it's about changing the environment and nourishing the environment that that flower is to let it grow. And I've not done justice to that in that summary, but like sometimes I hear or have heard over a long period of time of being involved in sport in different dressing rooms, they don't get it or they haven't done this or instead of we and us in that language and the environment that they're in. So you have all these different types of people, these they're different makeups and experiences that are in front of you. Passionate, if we're in the world of sport, they're committing to doing something or exploring a new space. And you as the coach or the assistant coach or the physio, or if you have an analyst and all that, you're in that privileged position to be on that journey with them. And that's why it's so important to not try and shortcut your learning and to have all these opportunities to take on the what and understand the how and the why in between. I think you put it there fantastically. And one thing that really kind of jumps out to me is that no matter what the situation is, ultimately we're responsible for making sure the messages that are communicated are understood. Um, because I think it was uh, John Wooden that said, you know, you haven't taught until they've learned. So, you know, on that note, um, I'm going to just say thank you because it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure we could probably sit here for hours on end to unpack further. But just um, before I do let you guys go, maybe just want to kind of 
quickly let everyone know where they can find your book and if they had any questions or anyone wanted to know further information around what you guys do and, 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 and the information you've got access to where they could do that yeah cool so amy mentioned earlier on about amazon and um, one of the key parts of the book being so cheap is that a lot of books that have this type of quality from researchers and practitioners around the world is that they're extortionate and for one reason or another that's fine and how they operate so we we were adamant that we wanted this to be a handheld throw it in the car pick it up when you're waiting to collect the kids before a session Sunday morning whatever it is to pick it and drop it and we've had incredible feedback from coaches across the spectrum of levels to go oh, I get it that's really interesting I can't believe this um, and the book isn't challenging all the minute. it isn't coming back and saying you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong it's um so so definitely Amazon or Sequoia on the website um is the best part to to find and then obviously you can follow me on twitter or drop me an email i'm at jenny cody 10 on twitter or an email jenny cody at gmail.com i'd love to have a conversation i'm always around to share and listen thanks jen and yeah yeah you can find me on twitter also at a underscore whitehead one or um you can kind of search L amy whitehead lgmu and you'll get my work profile with um our publications and contact details on there Amazing. And you guys just want to kind of finish up by saying, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, these sorts of conversations do take place and coaches do start to consider a bit more closely what they're actually doing. And I love the way that you've mentioned that the book is really just a pick up and drop off uh, thing. Um, it's not something that you need to kind of dig your head into and just be sucked into it. But I think the really key message for maybe coaches to consider and take away from that is don't be in a rush to try every try every new concept that you've come across try and implement everything in one go take it one step at a time it might just be a couple sentences that you've picked out of the book or a couple sentences or you know 10 seconds that you've heard on this podcast think about what that what, what that looks like for you go and go away apply it see how it works before you start trying to cram everything in one because you might not be able to handle all of that change in one um in one big swoop so just um just on a final note guys thank you again for your time i really appreciate it fascinating episode guys please do get in touch with with the ladies um and also please do get in touch with myself at the coaches network on twitter let me know your thoughts on the on the podcast let me know your thoughts on this episode and if there's anything that you, you know really stood out for you that would be much appreciated have a great day guys take care well there you have it guys another episode of the coaches network podcast where our aim is to bring the world of athlete talent and personal development together to just one platform and you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of you can tag us in those mentions as well on instagram at the coaches network or on twitter at the coaches net we look forward to hearing from you let us know what you thought about today's episode and until next time guys take care everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.